Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. Today on the Talking Biotech podcast, we talk about domestication of a crop that we've discussed with respect to its biotechnology applications. And we're talking about eggplants. And whether you're calling them brinjals or aubergines or eggplants, they're a curious crop because here in the in the West, we don't think of them as, uh, as really a, a centerpiece of our diet. Yet in some places, they're very important. And even though we discussed this a few weeks ago, there were a lot of stones unturned in terms of what is an eggplant? Where did it come from? How is it used? And for that, we were able to talk to an expert, Dr. Mark Chapman, who's a lecturer in ecology and evolution at the University of Southampton in, in the UK. Yeah, hi, Mark. Uh, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Kevin. It's really nice to be talking to you. Yeah, it's really nice. I saw your talk last year at Plant Animal Genome in uh, San Diego, and I thought, ah, I have to get him on the podcast. And I wrote it down, and uh, you know, now it's been several months, but um, really glad we could get you on here because... What the heck is this eggplant thing? Where where did it? Um, what is it? And and why is it important for us to understand evolutionarily? Well, um, thanks for this, Kevin. I'm really interested in uh, in finding more about uh, your podcast as well as hopefully telling you more about eggplants. Um, so the eggplant, it's uh, it's a species. It's related to tomatoes and potatoes, so it's in the same group. Um, but it's found in Asia, whereas um, the the other members, so the domesticated tomatoes and potatoes, they come from South America. So it's quite interesting to compare how these different crops have originated in different parts of the world. Um, it's actually very, very diverse where it's found natively. So if you go to markets in India or in China, you'll find dozens of different types of eggplant. So it's very different to the supermarkets um, in Britain and the US, where you would go and find these uh, sort of, um, you know, eight to ten inch long, shiny, purple, all very uniform eggplants. If you go to India and China, you'll find long ones, short ones, uh, different colors. You can get green ones, yellow ones. They almost come in a sort of reddish orange color. 
So actually, that's where we think it originated, because there's so much genetic diversity there. Um, there's actually two other species um, called an eggplant, which are then they're closely related, but they're not the same species. There's an African eggplant and another, um, another one called the Ethiopian eggplant. They're grown very locally in Africa, um, so they're not grown on the sort of scales that we're talking about with the eggplants um, that you would normally see in a supermarket. But they're actually kind of similar. They're, they're from the same, same group, and they've been semi-domesticated, not fully domesticated, but they're eaten for their fruits as well as their leaves. So the thing we call eggplant, Solanum melongena, um, that actually comes from the Italian um, melanzan, which probably means um, mad apple, which is quite a, quite an interesting <laughs> phrase because some of these wild eggplants, um, if you actually ate them, they do have poisons in them, so they're related to deadly nightshades and things like that. So if you actually ate some of these very wild species, um, potentially you would go crazy, and that's where the name comes from, the mad apple. Wow, that's really cool. I, I, now, what I really thought was interesting about your talk was that some of the eggplant species you showed, or well, varieties, or I guess they would be land races, perhaps, where the, they actually did look like an egg. It was like a white little orb on the plant. And is that perhaps why they call it an eggplant? Yeah, it's thought that the, the first records of, of the phrase eggplant actually come from um, about 1,500 or almost 2,000 years ago. And the, the diagrams or the, the pictures that were found alongside them do show those sort of egg-shaped fruits um, about, you know, two inches long, much smaller than the eggplants that we're used to today, um, and very white as well. So these are actually grown as ornamental plants now, um, and in some cases they're cultivated in Malaysia and the Philippines for their fruit, but um, Normally, it's the very much longer and larger fruits that are cultivated for for people's families and to to sell at markets and things like that. Yeah, I think there was a there was a picture either on your website or on your from your talk that showed the diversity of of the eggplant fruits, and it's gorgeous. And it really it's outstanding, isn't it? it? Yeah, it's it's something that I think here is so um, underappreciated and something that maybe in the West we need to be cultivating a little bit more for those varieties. Because I think I, so too, yeah, I agree. I think I think there's a good opportunity there, and I know that when I've eaten eggplant in other countries, I've tasted a lot of different flavors, but also a lot of different preparations. Um, here, we just cover the cover the darn thing in in uh, sauce, and you know, and, and and it isn't that great. But we've had it in Spain, where it's been covered, where it's been kind of baked and covered with cane sugar uh, syrup, and oh, delicious! So it does sound really good, yeah. So when when did it come to North America and and maybe other places in Europe? Um, I'm not exactly sure when it when it would have come um, come to North America and and certainly um, parts of uh, parts of Europe. What we can tell though is from when we look at their DNA that the the local land races in China and India and in Malaysia and the Philippines are all genetically very similar. So we think that once it originated or once it was domesticated, it did spread very quickly. So there was uh, something in uh, Southeast Asia called the Silk Road, and it was used to transport a lot of different products. And it ran basically east-west through India, China. And we think that probably through the Silk Road and all this transport, it spread very quickly once it had been domesticated. Um, As to when it got further afield, I'm not exactly sure. Um, but I think it probably would have spread quite quickly. 
you know, maybe I put the cart ahead of the horse there a little bit. Do we know anything about the fundamental domestication stories? Like uh, any any rationale for why people bothered to domesticate it? Well, um, so so one of the things I'm very interested in is actually what happens during domestication. So how you change from a, a wild species to a domesticated one. And it's typically not, um, it's not driven with a goal in mind. So, so 4,000 years ago, there wouldn't have been humans who said, I want to convert that wild eggplant into something that's bigger and purple and more tasty. But if they'd have started eating it, and they found one that was slightly less bitter, maybe it had less prickles on its stem, so it was easier to harvest the fruit, maybe the fruit was slightly larger, then over time, the humans would have started selecting those specific individuals. And over a period of a few hundred to a few thousand years, you end up with something that actually can look quite different, even though there was no actual goal in mind. So, as I said, we think this happened about 4,000 years ago, and it happened in Southeast Asia. Yeah, it's, uh, and I always like talking about domestication because, uh, it, for one, it helps people appreciate that what's what we have today, what we enjoy today for fruits and vegetables, didn't magically appear. That these are really human-driven creations that took something that was wild and unimproved, and with like you say, without real direction, ended up where it is. Well, direction came very recently, and one of the other things when you say that maybe one was less bitter one had fewer prickles i always defer to the idea that the day the farmer came outside and everything was eaten except for that plant you know one of them survived yeah and you inadvertently selected the genetics that would allow you to survive that particular pest or pathogen insult yeah absolutely and these are the sort of things that farmers are really interested in these days they want to know the genes that are involved in some of these traits they want to find out what makes a big fruit, what makes it pest resistant, because you can look at these genes in multiple crops. So if you find a gene for fruit size in tomato, you might say, let's look in aubergines, see if we can find them. Sorry, eggplants, the well, American phrase. So let's look in eggplants and see if we can find a gene and then breed better eggplants. You know, and I'll let that aubergine slide because you also used yeah. inches earlier. So I really appreciated your on-the-fly oh, okay. conversion because I, I do the same thing. I, I speak metric pretty well, but I uh, kind of do the conversion on the fly. That was very impressive. Okay, thank you. <laughs> so your interest, though, so you've been really focusing on the evolution of, of the eggplant. And one of your best tools has, have been using, uh, have been using genomics-based tools. Yes, that's correct, yeah. And so why did you choose those kinds of approaches, and what are some of the fundamental things that you've begun to unravel about the relationships within eggplants? Well, one of the things that's, that's quite tricky to understand without using genomic technologies um, is how genetic variation is partitioned between individuals, so among your different land races, or even throughout the genome, because genetic variation varies in different genes and different parts of the genome. The hypothesis, actually, for the domestication of eggplant was that there was more than one domestication. So it was thought that in India and in China, there was uh, humans selecting on this wild species, and in both places, they ended up making a domesticated eggplant. So I was really interested in looking at this in more detail, and actually trying to understand, first of all, whether there were two domestications, but then secondly, can we look within the genomes of eggplants 
to actually find the genes that might be involved in that make the changes that are necessary to go from a wild species with small fruit, bitter flesh, uh, a lot of spines that stop you harvesting the fruit, to a domesticated species where it's it's much softer, it's much more palatable, it's more pest resistant, and it doesn't have all these spines that will shred your skin when you're trying to harvest the fruit. That's it's an interesting phenomenon, and and we really haven't discussed it on the podcast so far. But we can look at domestication of uh, of, of wild species and of land races, and look at a number of examples where humans in different places domesticated the plant for the same reasons and ended up finding um, ended up cre- ended up selecting what essentially are mutants or genetic variants from the land races that have problems in exactly the same gene but in different places within the gene and you yes. can it's so cool but it basically says is that and we see this in barley and sorghum um, sorghum i think has three different domestication um, events that we can identify now that all had to, and uh, and also a uh, seed shattering um, in grains um, really interesting because what we see is that different groups of people found value in exactly the same gene thousands of years before we knew what a gene gene was absolutely that's correct yeah so what 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 did you find from eggplant what were some of the conserved um, ideas that maybe different people found valuable well the the first thing we found out was was that there wasn't two domestications so the plan was to compare the two domestications and see if it was exactly the same genes involved what we actually found, it, it's quite complicated in how these eggplants are related to each other. What it looks like is there was a domestication in India. So we know this because the wild eggplant is more genetically similar to these Indian land races. So that's why we think it originated in India. And then it very quickly spread, the domesticated species. But the wild species spread as well. And there's been some hybridization between the domesticated species and the wild species and so in some places we have eggplants that look like wild species but part of their DNA came from a domesticated species or even that the domesticated species actually sort of escaped domestication so at some point maybe there were mutations that stopped it having these very large fruit or actually um, it regained the ability to, to grow spines so that it was protected again so instead of it being a clear-cut example of there is a wild species in one place and a domesticated species in another place. We've got wild DNA all over the place, (laughs) domesticated DNA all over the place, and we're trying to actually fine-tune our analysis to find out exactly how much uh, gene flow there has been between the domesticated and the wild species. So in all your analyses, what are the genes that appear to be the ones that people selected during the domestication process. So that's very much a work in progress, Kevin. But what I can tell you is that it looks like there's been some similarities between the domestication of tomatoes and the domestication of eggplants. So tomato, it's a, a much more widespread crop, and there's been a lot more research into it. And so we know a lot more about the actual genes or the types of genes that were involved in domestication. So what we're doing with eggplant is being able to confirm some of these genes. So there's definitely evidence for um, genes involved in pest or pathogen resistance. And that seems to be one of the patterns that's um, coming up quite strongly with eggplants. 
is that there's a lot of genes that have something to do with um, they either respond to a stress, for example, temperature um, or, or a pest, something like that, that we think that humans must have selected on. And we know this because they've got almost no genetic variation within the domesticated species. So what you expect is that for the majority of genes in a genome, there are several different variants of them or alleles. But if a human selected on a specific allele, then there would be no more genetic uh, variation left at that gene. And so what we do is we find the genes where there's no genetic variation and we then think, well, there's a reasonable chance that that's because a human selected for a specific allele. And we're finding this um, in the genes involved in pests and pathogens specifically. But there's a lot of other genes as well that we're finding evidence that humans might have selected on them. Um, there's no real patterns in the data at the moment. It's not like we found um, a fruit shape gene that we know controls fruit shape. But because we don't know all the genes involved in fruit shape anyway, we could have found that and we just don't know it yet. We just know, for example, that it is a gene within the eggplant genome. Yeah, it actually sets itself up very nicely for some genome-wide comparisons in genetic populations because you have so much variation that you know, it does uh, avail itself very nicely to those kinds of uh, analyses. Yes, that's absolutely true. That That's a really nice way to, to ground truth anything you find out is to grow up lots and lots of these eggplants, so long ones, short ones, fat ones, purple ones, yellow ones, and look at the genetic variation in all these genes that we think might be involved. And if we find that all the purple ones have one allele and all the yellow ones have a different allele, we can actually say we think that that gene controls the fruit color, for example. And maybe something that it is worth mentioning, just because we've never brought it up before on the podcast, is if you're looking at DNA for, say, conserved polymorphisms or variation within DNA, um, have you looked at transcriptomes? Have you looked at the RNA? Because sometimes the DNA can be exactly the same, but maybe it's uh, turned on in one and turned off in another in terms of the actual expression of the gene. Uh, do you see any differences at the transcriptome level? Yes, we do, actually. That's something we're doing. So, so when you sequence the transcriptome, you get the DNA sequence of all the genes that are being turned on, as well as you can, you can work out what level they're being expressed at. So like you say, you can look in the wild species for a gene that's expressed very highly and the domesticated species where it's expressed very low. And that's another tool we use to actually find genes that look like they've been selected by humans because they're all expressed in one way in the wild and in a different way in the domesticated plants. And again, we've got, we've got genes involved in disease resistance. Um, there's some other genes as well coming up. We don't really know what they do, but at the moment we don't know what a lot of genes do in humans or tomatoes or anything. So we're starting to pull out genes with very good signals that they were involved in domestication. And we have to go go on and do a bit more work to find out exactly what traits they're controlling. No, sounds good. What, what about um, other types of genetic improvement? I know you, you've mentioned that you're not a breeder that, you know, don't really think too much about that. But where are the efforts going on to genetically improve the eggplant? And are scientists, breeders going back into the wild species to breed those genes in, like maybe resistance genes, things like that? Yeah, I think that's always something that's going to be um, at the top of the breeder's priority list is pest resistance because 
Um, there's this kind of evolutionary arms race between pests and diseases and, and crops. And if you know about the Irish potato famine hundreds of years ago, that was just because of a particular strain of a bacteria that took over and wiped out all the potatoes. So, for example, we would never want that to happen to any of our crops. But there's always the potential that we might get a mutant strain of a bacteria or a virus that can actually wipe out, a to uh, um, wipe out the whole of a crop. So I think breeders are always going to look for different pest resistances. And a good place, as you said, is the wild species because these live in very diverse environments. They, they live in very natural environments where there's going to be a lot of pests and pathogens. So they're the perfect place to look for genes that are involved in those traits. But another thing as well is thinking about climate change. And over the next few decades or um, 100 years, we're predicting a one to two degree increase in the global temperature. And in some places of, of Asia, where these land races are grown, um, they're already being grown in very hot climates. And potentially then we could look at the land races that, that live very successfully and grow and produce fruit in Asia, where they're presumably adapted to a very hot environment and actually try and identify genes involved in uh, tolerance to this high temperature and tolerance maybe to lower water input and actually think about breeding those into the domesticated eggplants that are grown um, throughout Europe and in North America now because there's always the potential that they're not going to survive too well as the global temperature increases. But if we could look at parts of the world where eggplants are growing where it's already very hot we could potentially find genes um, and specific alleles of those genes that would be really useful going forward over the next few decades. That's, uh, that's really important. And do, have you worked with any breeders since? I mean, it seems like you have the best toolbox going in terms of the characterization of the different species or different land races. Um, have, have, it, have you worked with anybody in an attempt to start to look at things like molecular markers that may... Um, underlie certain traits? We haven't done that particularly. We haven't talked to any breeders. Um, one thing we're, we're more interested in is sort of the evolutionary uh, origins and, and diversification of the crop. So whilst we are finding things that might be involved in breeding, that's not particularly our target. And in actual fact, you do need quite a lot of field space and um, very large growing populations to actually be able to do that with a lot of certainty. And at the moment, we're looking much more at a few dozen or a hundred plants at a time. If we wanted to start working with breeders, we'd have to um, we we wouldn't be able to give them the, the exact results they want at the scale we're working at. So it would involve a collaboration, which we'd be open to. Um, but we haven't really thought of of the applied questions so much. It's more about basic evolutionary questions that we're interested in. Well, um, do you uh, like eating eggplant? <laughs> That's a good question. So, yes and no. Um, it goes back to what you said before um, about how you cook eggplants. So, um, I've obviously got lots of eggplant cookbooks because my friends and family always buy them for me on my birthday. Um, I think that uh, there's a lot of ways you can cook an eggplant to make it taste nice. The problem is that the majority um, of the recipes I've tried just haven't They've been very simple, and they've just ended up as a kind of oily eggplant mush. 
I much prefer it if you grill it and you put some chili and some herbs on it and just grill it on a barbecue. Oh, yeah. You don't need to mess around with putting horrible sauces on it or covering it in parmesan or anything like that. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's kind of a love-hate thing with that, with eggplant. But the thing that I've really grown to appreciate is how something that we look at and, you know, and, and frankly, I rarely buy it. But you think about how this is the centerpiece of a diet for um, a billion people on the planet. And it really does uh, change your appreciation and thinking about what this thing is. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's so, so widely grown and so widely eaten in Southeast Asia that um, you would call it a staple crop there easily. Um, And if if any of your listeners want to just find out more about this, this amount of genetic variation that's present, if you just uh, do a Google search for looking at eggplant land races, um, you would easily find pictures of the, the sheer amount of diversity that's available in Southeast Asia. And it's, it stands in complete contrast to a, to a Western supermarket where it's almost disappointing to see the eggplants on the shelves. <laughs> so, Dr. Mark Chapman, thank you so much for being with us today. If people wanted to learn more about your research or about the diversity of eggplants, where would they look? Well, um, at Southampton, I'm, I'm the coordinator for something called the Centre for Underutilised Crops. So we're not saying that eggplant is an underutilised crop, but it, it comes under the same umbrella of crops that are maybe less studied compared to other ones. And so we have a, a Twitter feed, um, C-U-C Sotton, that's C-U-C-S-O-T-O-N. You can follow what we're doing. Um, and you can also look me up on the university web pages and you'll just see... Um, that'll go straight to my profile and my personal homepage as well. Okay, thank you very much for spending the time with us today. I really appreciate it. I learned a lot about this. And you're welcome back anytime. So just let me know when uh, the next big excitement hits. <laughs> I'll do that. I'll let you know when all our um, high-profile publications come out. <laughs> Greetings, Talking Biotech aficionados, and thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Thanks to you. You've written great, wonderful reviews on iTunes, and it's quite a beacon to the podcast surfer. Shows your amazing support for this mofo of a science show. And special thanks to you who dared to accept my challenge and got that Talking Biotech Tattoo. It's appreciated, but guess what? That tattoo lasts a really long time. It's my hope that someday, a few decades from now, we can look at your dermal commitment to a science podcast and ridicule you for defacing your flesh. Our hope is that your days in assisted living will use that tat as a conversation starter, reminding the elderly of the dark ages when science was shunned for flashy marketing and myth that placed fear over reason. However, with the support of so many listeners, we're moving innovation to application and helping people and planet along the way. So. Tell a friend, write a review on iTunes, and most of all, share the beautiful science that we learn from the expert guests that kindly share their expertise here on the Talking Biotech Podcast.
Hello everyone, I'm Chelsea Boonstra and welcome back to the Boonstra Report where we will talk about all things agriculture. On today's episode, we will be talking about leaf rust and wheat. Leaf rust, which is a fungus in wheat, can cause up to 50% yield loss and in the past producers used resistant wheat cultivars to control the disease. The genetic resistance only lasts for a short period of time as a new virulent pathogen then arrives. Scientists from the Donald Danforth Plant Science Center developed a transgenic wheat with durable resistance to leaf rust. This wheat type can now combat leaf rust without having negative effects on its symbiotic relationship with the beneficial mycorrhizal fungus. That's all for today. Be sure to follow me on my social media accounts at Forever Farm Girl for more up-to-date news and see you all again next week. So on the second cup of the Talking Biotech podcast, I'll go back to episode number 50, where Dr. Indra Vasil shared with us his recollections of the early days of plant tissue culture and gave us some good forward-thinking advice for uh, students and others that really were interested in biotechnology. But today, uh, I'll play the other part of our conversation. And kind of just as we were um, winding down, Dr. Vasil and I were just kind of uh, remembering some former conversations and talking about places we've been and things we've done. And I remembered that we shared a ride together from Daytona one time uh, back to Gainesville. And during that time, he told me about his experiences with Dr. Norman Borlaug. It turns out that the two were really contemporaries and shared some similar ideas about, um, about how we generate new varieties for people in need. So what I would like to play for you today is a little bit of that conversation, but mostly Dr. Vasile talking about his experiences with Dr. Norman Borlaug, starting with when they first met. I, I was on a um, scientific advisory board of a biotech company. Uh, I think it was in the late, uh, early 80s. And he was the chairman of the scientific advisory board. So I had, of course, heard about him and I knew of his work. I had great admiration for him, but you know, he was a Nobel Prize winner. So um, I, there was a meeting of the scientific advisory board in Orlando. So I went there and uh, they had asked that each member of the board, and there were actually two Nobel Prize winners on the board. Melvin Calvin from UC Berkeley was there and, and Borlaug, and the other very prominent people. So each of us had been asked to make a 15-minute presentation of our own work. So I presented my work on cereals uh, at that uh, small you know, group of people. And immediately after that, Borla came to me and he said, that is fascinating. I want to hear more about it. Will it be possible to come to your lab to see your work? And uh, here was a Nobel Prize winner, you know, one of the most famous people in the world in science. And he was asking me if he could come to my lab. And I said, look, any day, any time you want to come, just let me know. And so he came to my lab three times at his own request. And he would come and he didn't want uh, me to advertise that uh, he was coming to, to visit. And they didn't want any other you know, distractions. 
<laughs> so you win a Nobel Prize and you uh, go to visit laboratories but want to do it under the radar. And I think that tells us a lot about what Dr. Borlaug really was all about. It wasn't about him. We learn even more about that when we hear the conversations that he has and his interaction with Dr. Vasile's students. Oftentimes we can think of many people in our lives who took the time to discuss our science and share their knowledge with us, that they were perhaps um, maybe really heavyweights in our field, who uh, to talk to an undergraduate or spend the time with a graduate student and their you know, kind of small project, it really speaks volumes to the quality of those scientists and most of all, the quality of those people. Dr. Vasile continues. They come and talk to grad students, undergrads. We went out the whole, took the whole lab out for lunch, uh, had him at our house for dinner. And so he was best when he was talking to young people. And coming for him to come to my lab and talk to us and talk to grad students and postdocs, uh, you, those people still remember, you know, Borlaug coming and talking to them. And so that was the first, you know, time. And then, of course, he came to my lab and we talked many times. And then he invited me to, to come to Senate in Mexico. And first, he said, come to Hermosillo. This is in the northwestern Mexico. Where, you know, he had this shuttle breeding program that he would have four months in, um, at, at Senate, four months in Hermosillo in northwest and four months at a higher elevation so that they could you know, breed three times a year. And that was one of the very important uh, factors in his success. And so when I went to Hermosillo, he would be tagging the peasants, people on the street. And people would buy, bow to him, call him padrone because he had changed their lives. Uh, he took me down in a row of uh, wheat fields where they had all these different genetic strains, disease resistant, drought resistant, and breeding, bringing the genes together. And then he took me to Simit. Uh, I went to Simit twice uh, to meet with him and his colleagues, and we did some you know, work together. And so it, that was you know, a fantastic experience. Dr. Vasile mentions Simit. That's C-I-M-M-Y-T, Simit. And Simit was a research station that was set up in Mexico, primarily with funding from the Rockefeller Foundation and support from the Mexican government back in, say, 1940s, um, and was very influential throughout that time. And Dr. Borlaug was part of that program. His major goal there was to work on wheat varieties that yielded better and had resistance to rust, uh, a wheat disease. It turns out that the innovations he would make and the genetic innovations he would come up with would translate very well to places like Pakistan and India. This is where Dr. Borlaug really fed a billion people. This is what was referred to as the Green Revolution. Another very nice story coming up here from Dr. Vasile. Uh, I think I mentioned it some months before to you. I was at Simit for one of these uh, meetings and they have a fabulous guest house at Simit where they, they have host their uh, important visitors. So I was there and after four or five days, 
uh, I was to leave early in the morning and they have a staff car which was going to come and pick me up. And Borlaug had, you know, said goodbye the previous evening. He said he had some early appointment next uh, morning to go to the field or something. So when I got ready after breakfast, I came out and, and there he was standing. I said, you are not supposed to be. He said, no, 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 I can't let you go without personally seeing you out. So he came to my room and he picked up my suitcase. I said, uh, you know, what are you doing? He said, I have to carry your suitcase because you are my guest. I said, no, I'm not getting out of this room unless you... I said, you know, and so he he knew that, you know, the culture I come from, the Oriental culture, is a you know, great amount of respect for people who are older than you, who are your teachers and elders. And so we had a great rapport. He was very, very supportive. Uh, he introduced me to people. He talked about our work. And uh, so I think that, you know, a person of uh, his eminence who used to talk to presidents and prime ministers and, you know, kings and queens, for him to, to talk to, you know, people like me or, or to presidents or to students, uh, in a very humble way and not pulling rank, I think, talk to them at their level. It, it leaves a lasting impression on people. And so in that way, you know, and so he, he influences, you know, generations of people. Uh, you probably know that a number of people who became most prominent in wheat breeding and development of new varieties who brought to Semit and other places in the world. He was instrumental in recruiting those people. Some of them came, uh, for example, there was one person, I'm not going to name, he was from the, the so-called uh, the class of untouchables or Dalits in India. And he got him a Rotary Fellowship and then he trained him at Shemek and he became one of the most prominent wheat breeders in the world. So he did a lot of those people. And this was not only there in Africa, in many countries, he did the same thing in Latin America. In Mexico, when I walked with him on the streets of small towns, people would come and, you know, almost prostrate themselves in front of him because he single-handedly more or less had changed the entire lives of whole regions in Latin America. And the same thing he did in India and China. So, you know, there are, he was a great example of what a great man can do, not only in terms of helping humanity, but also encouraging young people to take up the same cause. And he did until, you know, he passed away. He kept doing those things. So I think that he was a great influence on me. And you know, people like Timon and Philip White, Kulebrand. Jeff Shell was another example. He was one of the first prominent uh, molecular biologists to, to publicly talk in support of our work and that this was a system which, which could be used successfully. So so I'm very grateful uh, and very thankful for having had uh, such mentors uh, to help me in my And Dr. Vasil says the magic word, um, grateful. I was very grateful for his guidance over the time that he spent at the university with me, but also very grateful that he would take the time to talk to me today. Um, it is an important uh, aspect of what we do, 
and that is identifying and remembering always that we do stand on the shoulders of giants like Borlaug and Vasil, and that all of our successes really are founded in those who have really blazed that path before us. I'm also really grateful to have this medium, to be able to sit in my office with a microphone and prepare distillations of science that many of you are consuming. (laughs) It's really uh, exciting to see the numbers that pile up every week, and as more of these podcasts are available, it seems like listenership continues to grow. And I really appreciate that. So tell a friend that you like this podcast. Maybe share it on your website. Share it in your social media. Um, I found a lot of people like to share the episodes on coffee and papaya with people who are non-scientists, just to give them an idea as to the beautiful things that science can do. My name is Kevin Fulta. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.